Hello, hello, is anybody there? Yeah, hey. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? Good, how are you? I am well. Thank you so much for doing this on a Sunday morning when you could be doing a whole bunch of other fun stuff, I imagine. It's my, my pleasure to be here. The, gar- the garden will wait. Oh, lovely, lovely. Well, I, I'll be sure to not take up too much of your time today, but I'm really excited to get to learn a little bit more about you, where that writing spark comes from, and a whole bunch of other stuff in between. So is it okay if we start at the beginning? Where did this start for you, the whole life thing? Yeah, that, um, that works great. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, um, and grew up in a neighborhood that was within the city, but like not in the city and sort of in this weird liminal liminal space. Um, not really a suburb the way we talk about suburbs now, but also not, not urban when we think of urban. Um, but I also spent a lot of time down in Portsmouth, um, which is in um, Southern Ohio mm. um, with, with my parents' families. Um, so spent a lot of time in the summers down there. And I think writing for me really started um, sort of concurrently when reading, so my voracious reading started, which was um, my aunt used to take me to the Goodwill bookstore. <laughs> and it wasn't just like, I have a Goodwill bookstore up the road for me here. And it's like this little, you it's know, kind of square a little thing. This was yeah, yeah. Because this was like this sprawling expanse, you know, the, the like a bottom floor of an old building. It was huge. Um, and you could get these bags of books for like 50 cents. Um, and I would get all these just great old poetry books. Um, got a Norton anthology of poetry once. And I think that that sort of sparked a lot of my love for meter. Oh, bless him. So a lot of it, a lot of it comes from the time that I spent down um, in Scioto County in Ohio um, with my parents' families. How was family for you growing up? Was it was it a pretty okay environment? Did they encourage writing, or was it not so much a thing in your family? Um, that's a uh, that's an interesting question. So, in terms of reading and writing, I think um, reading and writing were really encouraged. I come from a family of natural storytellers mm. and natural poets. My grandfather, so my. I never knew my grandfather. He died when my dad was seven, but he had a, he dropped out of school when he was 14. He had a fifth grade education. But when I read his letters home from World War II, mm. they're poetry. Like he's got iambic pentameter, just like whipping it off like it was nothing from the trenches, right? Like, um, so they read a lot and they wrote a lot, not great spellers though, and not um, not highly educated, not um, like I have a PhD and that, yeah, that, that was its whole other process of coming into academia from the kind of background I have. But um, yeah, they, they really encouraged me to read and write. They didn't really have a good sense necessarily of what direction to encourage me in. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way that that was kind of better because I got I got to read the things that they loved as opposed to the things that they thought I should love or the things I would need to love to be a poet. Yeah. Like they introduced me to the poets that they loved. Yeah. Which ones did they love? A lot of um, John Greenleaf Whittier and a lot of Longfellow. Okay. So a lot of sort of mid to late 19th century American poets, um, mm. a, lot, a lot of meter, a lot of rhyme. Uh, but also a lot of narrative and a lot of jokes, a lot of a lot of fun, funny poems. So and like Lewis Carroll's uh, Father William was one of the the poems that okay. my dad would recite to me a lot. <laughs> um, so a lot, lot of fun, a lot of meter going on. Yeah. Were there any stories that stick out in your mind from that time period? Like my parents are here telling me stories and and I only realized it after the fact that they were using that form to share stuff with me, you know, and, and the things that they love. Is there a memory by any chance? <laughs> um, I think, I think one of the, um, so this is not about necessarily the poems, but thinking about the time that my dad and my cut co- and my cousin who was around my dad's age, we had these puppets. Um, so we had like a Kermit the frog puppet and um, animal and I think maybe a Fozzie, like, you know, all the, all the Muppets. <laughs> and they took them and they did 
um, they were doing scenes out of Shakespeare from memory. Wow. So the so the words, I mean, it probably wasn't exactly spot on, but they were, you know, they were hitting the high points and the best lines. <laughs> um, and but they were doing it with like Muppets and oh, there was amazing. There was one like they were doing Hamlet and Kermit was, I think, what is it? Polonius, where he's like, I am slain, like where he's behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. And, he gets, and it was like Kermit was just Ugh, and, you know, flailing his little frog arms out. And OK, so, listen, I would kill to see that on stage. Like <laughs> that is that makes my my theater kid hearts, you know, like sore. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. But that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it seemed like they weren't afraid to just be open. Right. They they were just kind of feeding whatever story needed to be told, you know, or to have a good time. Was that kind of a good picture of it? Yeah, I think I think and I think the to have a good time is is really key. Mm. Um for my family, I, they're natural storytellers, natural performers. Um, mm -hmm. and one of the things that my, one of my aunts said was don't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. Oh, love um, that. <laughs> and she was kind of meaning about like one of my other aunts, like, you know, don't believe everything she tells you. Um, <laughs> but I think it's also kind of the family, family motto, which can be a really great thing when you're talking about being a writer, a little bit, more difficult thing when you're talking about healing and dealing with family trauma, but that's for sure. a different for sure. Thing. There, there's two sides uh -huh. to that coin, isn't there? Where you you sometimes feel like that's an, a tool for for hurt or or pain. Uh, absolutely, we might come back to that. But I wanted to ask you about school. When did you or what did you go to school for? I have a lot of degrees. I school was a really um, comforting place. Like I understood the rules of school and I could like excel and I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have, um, I have a bachelor's degree in secondary education for English and I was a high school English teacher for about two months. Oh, really? And that I, it, it didn't work out for me. Um, mm. and so I had been in this, like you taught half day and you were in grad school half day for secondary education. Mm -hmm. And so I dropped out of that program and switched over to a grad program in college student personnel. So I have a master's in college student personnel, focusing a lot on advising and leadership sort of stuff. Ah, uh, okay. And then about 10 years after that, I went back and I got a master's in, um, in English literature with a creative thesis. And then I have a PhD in English literature with a creative dissertation. So oh, lovely. Kind of this all over path. So I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like that turned you away from, from teaching or what was that environment like that led you to figure out that that wasn't for you? Oh, um, I, that's tough. Cause, cause I love, I love teaching. And, and even when I did college student personnel, I was always like, I would teach classes on, um, like it was sort of an intro to college class, like helping people adjust. Mm. Um, and I taught study skills classes and I, I like, I was still taught. I think um, the public school that I was teaching in, it was 1997 and I had students who didn't have telephones in their home. Mm. There were some students who didn't have running water. Wow. And, and the interesting thing is that it wasn't those aspects that, sort of drove me away from teaching. It was the fact that like the cooperating teacher I was working with didn't seem to take any of those things into account. Mm. And at that age, I mean, I was 21, 22. I was, I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. um, and that I didn't understand. It wasn't that I didn't understand. It was, I wanted things changed and I wanted people helped. And like, mm -hmm. why can't we do this? Let's yeah. do this now. Like, you know, like, yeah, it, it was hard to see kind of like that in structure, right? That, that huge infrastructure of education, right? You know, maybe the, the higher up mandates that permeate all the way down to the educators. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and seeing like, um, so we had to, my big, I have a memory of, we had to she had me do these cards for the students the first day where they had to give us like their name and their phone number and stuff like that. And I had multiple kids who didn't have phone numbers. And to me at that time, it was just this, 
kind of mind blowing thing mm. um, that I had. I mean, I had family that had grown out in the holler and stuff, but what was that? The holler. So holler is like um, where you've got two sort of ridges or hills, and then there's a space in between. Oh, um, so not a valley. Like a valley is sort of bigger, grander sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's just sort of like between two little hills. It's just okay. like a little holler runs through. Um, <laughs> so like I had, I had so, but they had always had phones. They had always, well, not always. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's complexity in my mind about this. Um, but it really, it really struck me. And in talking to my cooperating teacher about it, like she was like, well, we need a phone number for them. Like she was just very dogmatic and not very understanding of, and I was like, but they don't have one. What yeah. do we, you know, if they don't have it, how can they, if there's no way to contact their families? Um, anyway, so yeah, it was complex and I didn't feel like I got a lot of support. Um, in sort of trying to deal with and figure out where what's my role as a teacher. Yeah. And I think at that age, I just felt like, um, and this is, yeah. Um, I appreciate you I telling me like this, by be, the way. Yeah. Huh? I appreciate you telling me this, oh. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, um, I just, I felt like I should be able to fix everything for everyone. Um, that it was like, as my, in my role as a teacher is my job to fix everything for every every student in this room, all 35 of you, I should be able to fix everything for you. Yeah. Um, which of course, like looking back, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> had ideals, you had goals and things that, you know, are a certain way that you saw the world. Were you writing poetry at the time? Um, I don't think I wrote a lot of poetry at that time. Um, though I, I had, I had written poetry throughout my undergrad. Um, and, and before that, um, but I think I had gotten it in my head that it was not important to be writing poetry, huh. um, that, that I needed to focus on the teaching and that there wasn't enough space to do both. Whereas in hindsight, I'm like, oh, of course, you know, there's plenty <laughs> of time and actually um, writing and teaching can go hand in hand. And it's, and also writing and activism go hand in hand, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it's a, it can be a space to, to do a lot of, good in the world and yeah so but yeah i i wasn't writing much at the time yeah could you tell me a little about how that spark started where you said you know you maybe there's a way that we can talk about important things using this through the poetry if that's the case because yeah. <laughs> i i misunderstand yeah. all the time <laughs> no i think that that's definitely the case and i think about my hesitancy was thinking about the word spark and i feel like it was it was more like when you have a fire and then the fire goes down and you still have the embers, then every once in a while the embers sort of shoot back up and can start their own thing again. Um, Cause I feel like when I was, when I was in middle school, which was when I first started writing poems, mm -hmm. um, when I was in middle school, I would write these poems that were like, you know, keep a fire burning deep inside of your heart, mm. right? Like it was these, these like, sort of impassioned, like, um, so not a lot of specifics, but definitely had this sort of activism bent to it that it, that mm. it was like, you know, we can take comfort from these poems and they can spur us on. Mm. Um, and then I think, um, I'm thinking about when I was in my master's program for creative writing, I started to write more poems about what my childhood had been like. And I had this one poem where I was trying to explain what I, what I was trying to explain was about one of my babysitters who had been abusive mm. and explaining sort of this, that she was basically just at wit's end, that she didn't have money. She didn't have time. She was tired. And it was just this level of frustration that she couldn't deal with. Um, and at one point in it, there was something about that she didn't about not getting on public assistance because it was too confusing, that the system was oh, too wow. confusing. Um, and I remember, I remember someone who I shouldn't, I won't name, but there was um, there was a mentor who read the poem and didn't understand it and said, "Oh, you mean because she was embarrassed?" And I was like, "No, because the system is hella complex, mm -hmm. right?" Like she. 
it was too much. She didn't have enough, what we would call now, like we would say bandwidth or whatever, like yeah. spoons, like she didn't have enough to be able to navigate that system um, right. because she was too busy doing all the other stuff. And I think that it was that moment that I was like, poetry can help people understand things they don't already understand. And in that way, reach out and share stories, but also being confronted with that frustration that they have for poetry to work in that way, the audience has to be willing to see what they're not expecting to see. Mm. And sometimes I don't think readers do that. And so I think we get a lot of poetry that um, gets tamped down and doesn't do as much heart work as it could, doesn't do as much connection as it could, because people start to try to change things to make it more understandable, more easily understood, I guess. That was the same mentor that also told me when I said something about poetry, poetry being able to offer a time capsule of our, of our concerns for yeah. the future, like that we can, we write them down and the future can see them and know who we were and what we were interested in. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, that's not what poetry should do at all. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't understand what you think poetry should like, because it was like, okay, it shouldn't be political. It shouldn't, it shouldn't oh, be about trauma, childhood trauma. Shouldn't be the, what the heck is it for? Yeah. So what was, um, what was her ideal uh, version of poetry? You know, I don't know. And I don't know if I ever quite figured it out. Mm. Something buried in an abstraction, perhaps, or or something that uh, I guess maybe an idealistic form that that's just kind of nebulous that speaks to everyone, or that everybody can see something in them. I think definitely that idea that there is a universal, and mm -hmm. that poetry should speak to the universal. But I think universal being defined as the um, universal as being defined as like the the white middle to upper middle class educated I universal see. which yeah. may or may you know that's not everybody's experience you're right because there there is a specific language to academia there's specific language to the kind of art that is being created by people who have had that education that maybe the lay person can't really grab so do you think there that we are a little bit removed from that with the internet and with poetry being a little bit more proliferated on social media, that poetry has become less about the formal way of approaching it and more like this is for everyone again, or has that even been an issue before? That is a good question. I think that, I mean, thinking about my family, like poetry always was for everyone. Um, and my family never stopped loving poetry um, or writing poetry. Um, mm. Like I have, I have little little local stapled together journals that my aunt was in mm. in the seventies that have some of her poems. <laughs> and I, th I think, I think people never stopped loving poetry. People never never stopped writing poetry. But I think what the internet has done is it has made the let me choose my, let me think about my words. <laughs> yeah, <here>. of course. <laughs> Sorry. It's a big question. Um, yeah. And it's one that I, I, I struggle with all the time as someone who I have a PhD in creative writing. I taught creative writing for many years at a university, but don't, but I don't now. Um, and I, I think what the internet has done and what social media has done is it has forced the established academic poetry world to reckon with the fact that they don't have the lockdown on poetry, uh -huh. that, that there are other ways of looking at poetry. There are other ways to write it, to love it, to experience it, even to present it, right? Whether you have poetry on the page or you have poetry um, being spoken out loud, like you've got, you've got lots of, and, and I think it's made them have to reckon with that fact. And as, I mean, you watch on Twitter though, every week there's some new argument going on about that. And that's what I feel like we're seeing is that we're seeing these worlds come together 
all these people who have loved poetry but have I don't, not really loved it for different reasons because I think at the core it really is about feeling those that connection mm-hmm. and it's just everybody thinking that they've that they're the ones that know how to make that connection right and that there's only one way and if it doesn't work for them it must not work for anyone right and that's you know that's obviously not the case and but I think so I don't know if social media has necessarily brought poetry to more people, but I think it has made the poetry worlds come together more um, and made people have to reckon with the fact that there are different ways of looking at it. And it'll be really interesting to see in the next 10, 20 years. I mean, we're not going to know for probably 100 years about what that does to what the poetry establishment looks like. Yeah, for sure. For so sure. it'll be interesting. What has Twitter done for you specifically and in, in your connections, your sense of community and your poetry career? I'm always on the fence about Twitter, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on what, you know, if the pros outweigh the cons. <laughs> that's, oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think the pros definitely outweigh the cons for me, but I think I'm also very careful on Twitter in terms of like if I can see something is happening in the discourse, I usually won't, I just stay away from it. I'm like, <laughs> I will read things, but oh, look, you guys are fighting. Yeah. So I, I try not to get too much into the, the things that sort of blow up. Mm. But I think one of the things that Twitter has done for me is that there, I think in my graduate programs, I felt, it, it felt very, I mean, odd is maybe a word, but. <laughs> It was it was hard on me to be a working class poet and to you know have people talking about where their grandparents got their PhDs from. Yeah. And I'm like, I had out of my four grandparents, one of them graduated from high school. You know, like <laughs> to feel like if I talked about that stuff, then then I had to be ready for the reactions, mm. which were either like there could there were some people that would be like, oh you know, the disdain sort of thing, but more so it was to treat me as a curiosity. Interesting. And I really didn't like that either. Um, Mm. And so going through the programs, I mean, I had a a few for like, I gravitated towards other people who had working class backgrounds. So then on Twitter, you, you find out that there are so many more people who are poets who are writing, who are from working class backgrounds or um, and, and who talk about it or who have Appalachian bra- backgrounds that are talking about what their experiences were like and building these communities. Mm-hmm. And so in that respect, it's, it's been wonderful that you find out that you're not, oh, this feels so cheesy. Okay. This is going to be cheesy and well, cliche. Listen, listen, this is a safe space for cheesy. I, the only reason I'm doing this is because I need cheesy. I need inspiration and I need to, to get lofty about things. So go ahead with that caveat <laughs> set. Um, awesome. Thank you. You feel like you're not alone. Like you, you read what people say. And at least once a day, someone will say something on Twitter where I go, oh, I'm not alone. Yes. I feel that exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so in that respect, Twitter has just been fabulous. Yeah. You, the, the thing with Twitter is though, you can't guarantee what you're going to need to see before you get to that thing, right? Like <laughs> you may see like six tweets in a row of people fighting over M dashes versus semicolons. <laughs> and I, and I just like, my response to those is I just like an, a good old fashioned comma splice, right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> like that, just like move on. Um, so it, it's kind of hard sometimes to sort through getting to it. Um, yeah. But you, you really, you can feel really connected. And I think from a career standpoint, um, I have found out about a lot of good journals that I never think I, I don't think I ever would have known about before. Mm. And, and I see those just from, from people's tweets, um, like Taco Bell Quarterly, which you, I have you. Have you ever read? Have I, you ever read them? I actually, I think I may have seen you retweet something. I was like, oh, that's a great name for a journal. <laughs> it draws yeah, the I, eye in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you, I and you, I. You see the name and you think, oh, okay, this is going to be people having a lark. Okay, 
but then you read the poems and mm -hmm. they're fabulous poems yeah um like there's this one poem that's um where somebody's cat is dying mm -hmm. and they're they're sharing a i think it was a burrito with the cat like on its and i'm gonna cry just thinking oh like God. it was just beautifully crafted and it's stuff that could just like you know there's this little margin of error where it could go into like you know just sort of ridiculousness and not in a good way mm. but it doesn't but their their poems usually just really hit hit on that line and they all have taco bell in them somehow so that's kind of the idea then you're using that as the as a springboard for whatever it is that you want to write poetry about but it has to include that bit of taco bell stuff anywhere in the poem is that it yeah okay Okay. Well, yeah, that sounds so like a, be... yeah, that sounds like a hell of a challenge. I mean, just creating that space for the absurdity of that, <laughs> that, that thing, right. Taco Bell to exist alongside something that is super personal and, and, you know, very immediate and, oh man, I could start crying too. You know, I, I, I have to go head over there after we're yeah, done. And I, I, I hope someday I will get accepted. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> um, so far, just rejections, but you know, I'm hoping someday to to craft something that that gets in there. But I I never would have known about them mm -hmm. um, without without Twitter, without being on Twitter. Right. Um, so so I love that. Now, could you tell me a little bit about this um, chapbook of my micro poems that you did called Fine Considering, which seems to cover uh, a very difficult time. A complicated time in your life if you could tell me a little bit about that one yeah um it's a i never quite know what to call it so sometimes i'll call it a chat book sometimes i call it a zine um it's from rinky dink press and they have these great little they're only about a dollar um they're printed on a sheet of paper and then it it's folded up in this magical way that makes oh, it cool. into a little zine and so fine considering is a collection of six poems about my experience going through chemotherapy for ovarian cancer. And um, it is, I actually wrote them while, like I had, I saw the call for these micro, micro poem chapbook and while I was going through chemo. And so they are poems that I actually wrote while I was in the chair um, mm, getting wow. my infusions. Cause it's, um, it's not, chemotherapy is the actual process is really boring. Like I, I'd be there from eight in the morning until three in the afternoon. Um, and there's not a lot you can do. And, mm. um, and so I, I, I worked on, on poems about what my, my experience was like going through that, trying to be as honest as I could. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think eventually I will write something more, something longer about the experience. Mm -hmm. I just recently did the Tupelo Press's Thirty Thirty project. Are you familiar with them? I'm, with that? I'm not. It's this wild experience where each month Tupelo Press invites poet, poets in to write thirty poems in thirty days. So you're right. You're and then they they put them on their website, but they're such early drafts, right? You're just you know whipping them off kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's. It's also a fundraiser, sort of like a walkathon oh, to raise okay. money for Tupelo Press. So you're trying to raise money for the press, but you're also writing a poem every day and sharing it. And it's a really cool way if you want to, um, for certain people, it helps them get over anxiety because you're just like, well, doesn't matter what the poem looks like, just got to have a poem today, get it up. <laughs> and it also, if you're working on a specific project that that's hard to dive into because you're like, well, <laughs> I need I need a poem by 10 o'clock. So let's let's do it. Um, and so I used that time to work on I did it in December and I wrote poems about my experience going through ovarian cancer, hoping to try to get myself to write more about it. Cause I I just haven't it's it's been um my diagnosis was in May of 2019. So mm. it's been almost three years now. Um, and it's just not, I don't know, it's hard to dive into and, yeah. and also hard to be honest about, um, cause I don't want to upset anybody. Sure. <laughs> um, cause that can be hard, but so I wrote, they did, they, they didn't all end up being about, um, the ovarian cancer, 
um, and the chemo, um, like for the solstice, I wrote a poem. My mother wanted a poem that um, mimicked William Morris. And so I wrote this poem about the sun and rest. And so, um, oh, which beautiful. I thought, yeah. So, yeah. so that kind of veered away, but by and large, they were about the, mm. about the experience going through that. So right now I just have the, the little, the zine and, and it'll be interesting to see how those poems are different from poems I write after the experience. Sure. Oh. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. I know it's a, a delicate thing to talk about and it is something that I don't want to say it's stigmatized in our community, but nobody knows how to talk about these things uh, a lot of the time. And, and for you to have that strength to share that with the world and everyone, I know it's greatly appreciated and I do appreciate it. But you mentioned that you were a member of the Poetry Witch community. Can you tell me what that entails? Because that sounds awesome. I looked up the website, but I'd rather hear it from you, what that experience has been like and what you do there. Yeah. The Poetry Witch community was started by Annie Finch a few years ago, and it's an online community that's open to anyone who identifies as women or gender nonconforming. It's, it's a social media site. So it's through um, Mighty Networks that runs sort of social media sites um, for specific interest groups kind of thing. Mm. And people come together and talk about poetry, but also about goddess-based spirituality. So not everyone identifies as a witch within the community. We have people who identify as just like eclectic pagans, but we also have people who identify as um, Christians or Muslims or Jewish. We have a broad range of folks within the community, um, but everybody wants to come together to talk about their spirituality, but also about poetry. Hmm. There's also a heavy um, metrical bent because um, Annie Finch, she's fabulous. And I'm hmm. like, I want to call her the queen of metrical poetry, but I feel like there would be other people who would be like, hey, I don't want to start any discourse on Twitter about that. Um, but I think. Um, OK, I was going to say, I'm not going to sample that one. I'm, I'm not going to take those 30 seconds and make you look like you're like going on a rampage about this. Context. It's also a space where um, Annie offers classes for people mm. there as well. So I've taken a couple of different classes that focus just on metrical or formal poetry. Um, I primarily write in meter now, mm. and I only started, it was fall of 2020, so about a year and a half ago, where I took my first class in metrical poetry. Mm. Um, I, had a, I had a pretty strong background in it just from my family, but that had gotten diluted and the definition of what metrical was had gotten sort of messed up for me. And I had gotten really detached from what I had grown up with, with my family mm. and taking the classes with Annie really brought me back to that, mm. um, helped me find my way back to where I had been before. That's interesting. That feels like another form of homecoming actually, even in your, in your creative work. Do you think that your spirituality has changed over the years and do you think that's impacted your your work in any way? I know these these are this one's a broad question, but <laughs> it is, and it's um it's such a good question too. It definitely has changed. When I was young, so I had various different things coming from different parts of my family, and so I I came from a family who like my dad's side. They were Christian. I, when I was down at my granny's, we went to, you know, I went out to church. They were Church of Christ. Um, so that was, um, so very Christian from, from my dad's side and, and also from my mom's side. But then I would also have, like, I kind of inherited a bunch of books from, um, my uncle died of a drug overdose when I was little. Mm. And then when they were finally ready to clean out his stuff, there were just all these books and records. And I just like pounced on them and we're like, <laughs> oh, these wow. are all mine now. Wow. Um, but in there were also, um, he had a lot of books about witchcraft and paganism. Oh. And, and they were all from the seventies. So they all, you know, there was kind of a different bent to them sort of than what I, vibe with necessarily, but it was definitely something that 
kind of kickstarted that connection. And I was always, I was always connected with nature. So, mm. um, like when I would fake run away from home, I don't know if other kids did that, but like little mini, little mini, little mini running away. Um, we had these two giant, um, it's two giant fir trees out in the, in our yard and they made this space inside and I would just like run inside and I would just like hang out in oh, these wow. trees. Um, just me and the spiders and the pine cones. <laughs> um, and so, and so I think that aspect of the spirituality of seeking solace in nature and those kind of connections, I think that was always there. Mm. Um, and I think some of it is just calling things different, you know, different names. Um, and it's also interesting because within my dad's family, there's at least three, if not four of us who, who are pagans. Mm. Um, and so I think that are like my, like the generation under me. So like my, my cousins, kids, so my cousins, but not my first cousins. Mm. Um, and so I think that connection with nature is, oh, has always been there for my family, regardless of what spirituality they may be or what religion they may be connected to. Um, and I hope that if they listen to this, if that is in the podcast and they listen to it, I hope that they are okay with me saying that. Mm. Um, but they, you know, they'll, they'll say things like there'll be a, a butterfly that will show up after someone's death. Oh. And they'll be like, well, that's so-and-so spirit coming back to, to say hello to us. Um, and so my family has a, a deep connection with nature. Mm. Um, and some of them express those connections through Christ and others um, will express those connections through, through goddesses or just through nature itself. So there's a lot of different ways to come at those same things. Yeah. Um, and it really, it was when I first got out of my first grad program was when I actually started delving more deeply into paganism and what does it mean and what does it look like? And, um, and I'm trying to think, did it affect my work? Like my actual writing? Um, and I think you mentioned that again, from your bio, so correct me if I'm wrong, that there is an interest in the environment. There's an interest in, in climate. And I just think that that, that has to be a connective thread there because of that respect and closeness that you have with nature that kind of allows you to go, go to that, you know, that role to try to serve and represent the environment in some way in your in your poetry do you think that's accurate yeah yeah i think i think that that is accurate um i think it also it in my poetry and the way in writing about the environment i think it also speaks to like what i was saying about myself as an early teacher where i was like oh my internet connection is oh no i can, can you, still hear you can you hear me yep okay um, I was getting unstable things. Um, I, I, I think it also sort of speaks to how earlier when I said about my early teaching and I was like, let's fix all these problems, fix all these problems now. Yeah. And I think writing poetry is a, is a, the same expression of that, especially with the environment that it's mm -hmm. a way to kind of scream out, let's fix these problems. Let's fix these problems now um, by showing people I don't know, little, little bits of it. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I think that's wonderful. I was going to ask you something about the way you construct your poems, because I was reading a couple of your poems that you had on your website and just beautiful, intense work. And there was one of my favorite lines ever in a poem to start the poem, which is Jesus was the promise of hot dogs. Uh, there is something so honest and, and, hilarious but also like this has this added context and i'm i'm curious how you originate the work how do you begin putting these things together and is a hook or an, a, an initial image the first thing that you think about I, it's it's different with each, with each poem i think i think for for that particular poem for um church of the unnamed subdivision I think that one came out from me trying to 
explain to people how much church meant to be meant to me as a kid, mm. but how it may or may not have actually, I mean, in some respects had to deal with spirituality, but it also was more about these little experiences of, yeah. you know, you're going to get hot dogs and there's going to be Coke and a rock band. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I assume that that still happens where there's lots of things for kids where, you know, it's, bring kids in and do all these fun things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah. yeah, it puts you in a, in a spot, a very specific point in time that, that you illustrated so clearly for us who, you know, may not have had something like that. It's, it's just like a clear, very clear image. And you also did that with the, the other poem that you shared with me, Tapestries, which I thought was this, this intense, lovely poem about, I felt, I felt like there was this otherness to it. Right. Um, and I'm curious kind of how that one began because it was just such a, do you think that, let, let me start with this. Do you think that that's an accurate representation of your work? Oh, I think it is. I think it is an accurate representation of my work in spirit. I think it's, it's almost an ars poetica. Like I don't, I don't want to go that that far or that grand, but, but I feel like the poem tapestries is what I want my poetry to do mm-hmm. is to say, you know, come, come find us. Like, um, yeah. if you've tried to tell your stories to other people and they just don't get it, come here, let, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's all share our stories together. Yeah. So I think in that respect, it is, I, um, so my grad programs, my, Masters and my PhD were both heavily ultra talk, um, which is a very chatty style, mm. funny. So it's it's funny, it's chatty, throws in lots of information from disparate. It's almost like um, doing a. Do you know what a Wikipedia race is? <laughs> no, n- never heard of that. What is it? It's where you like you start on a Wikipedia. Both people start on a Wikipedia page, and you're trying to get to you'd sort of pick another page. You're like, okay, we got to, we're starting on Bart Simpson and we're trying to get to squirrels (laughs) and you have to follow the links only within the pages and you see who can get to. Oh my goodness. So it's like degrees of separation, but with knowledge. Awesome. Yeah. And that, so, and that's sort of what, what ultra talk poems do. They, they, they follow those trains of thoughts Mm. and bounce around. Um, until they get to usually this like super powerful point. Um, so I had studied with um, Mark Halliday who coined the term ultra talk. And he's, that was my master's. And he coined the term about David Kirby, who I worked with in my PhD program. Mm. So um, tapestries, I think is this, is this interesting sort of liminal space poem where I was still writing fairly ultra talk style, but had had started to think more about meter. I hadn't taken Annie's classes yet, so it's not metrical, but I had started to get back to that metrical space that I grew up with from my family. Um, and so I think tapestries is kind of hanging out in that, in that middle ground there. Um, so in a way it, it is indicative of, of how I, of my style, but I think my more recent stuff tends to be tighter, sonnets um mm. but because of all that time i spent doing ultra talk i can make a clear narrative which i i didn't i, I don't know <laughs> am i allowed to be impressed with myself absolutely i'm gonna be impressed absolutely like, um <laughs> i'm just i'm impressed that i'm able to to tell a clear narrative in a metrical poem without mm. doing sort of um, like inverting my syntax and making these sort of weird, awkward sentences to make things work. And that, that is a gift that I got from working with Mark Halliday and, and David Kirby and, um, Mm. and Barbara Hamby and Jill Rosser. Like they, that was definitely a gift from my time working with them. I have two more questions for you, two and a half more questions to respect your time here. Number one, what is on the horizon for you? creatively what are you looking to explore in the in the coming months or years um i think what i'm looking to explore definitely more meter 
um, trying to to build my skills as a metrical and formal poet without without crafting poems that people look at and go, well, that's an old fashioned poem. Like like bringing bringing contemporary poetry to a place of connection with meter um, and with structure um, without losing without losing our pop culture, without losing our humor, without using, losing um, our ability to talk about the tough subjects that we talk about in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that's one of the things, um, like, right, so I have one novel, I'm, I'm also exploring this idea of doing novels in verse, because I, I get story arcs, or, you know, I, I hear wonderful stories, and I, I write a little bit of fiction, but it's just not my because fiction, there's just so many words. Mm. Um, that's my like <laughs> joke that I used to um, when I was taking a fiction workshop. I was like, "There's so many words, Virgil. I can't write so many words." Because um, it was with um, Virgil Suarez, who's also a poet, um, but he was a fiction workshop, um, and I would just complain about how many words it took. Um, so I love that idea of of long narrative arcs. Um, and so I've, I've just been working on, um, a novel in verse that's about my, my granny and her experiences in love, but she wasn't a romantic sort of person. She was a very, very practical person. Um, but I think oftentimes practical people get seen as like, oh, oh, practical, like we sort of downplay that in art. We don't like practical people in art. We make fun of them. They're the the sad, the huh. sad sack that yeah, we, yeah. we we must break into their shells. <laughs> and so I my task was to tell her story without making people feel that way. For her to be a strong, practical woman. And it's not seen as like, oh, she was so trapped in this practical relationship with this like crazy, wild, silly husband. Um, because like my grandfather would just like they did not have much money. They lived beside the county dump. Like they, they were not rich folks. And he would just like show up home from work one day with bagpipes. (laughs) It's like, did you know these bagpipes, uh, bagpipes better than food? What are you doing? Um, so, so my task was to like show that relationship without villainizing one or the other. But so I do that in a novel in verse that I've, I think I've just, I've, I've, I've finished it ish. I'm like at a stopping point. And so now I'm starting to work on a novel in verse where a friend wants her, wants her mother's story told. And after about two months of trying to get her to write it, friend, why don't you, I think you could write it. Um, And she's like, no, I am not a writer and I've got too much stuff going in my life to, you know, try to learn those skills. Mm. How about, uh, how about we just, you know, sit down over wine periodically and I tell you lots of <laughs> stories and then you magically turn them into a novel and verse for me. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try that. That's a lovely challenge to take on. <laughs> that, that's just to be faithful to one story that's not your own, but also fitting it into that framework just sounds incredibly exciting, but that's going to be an amazing, you know, time for you. And I hope that we get to see those projects in the very near future. Now, last question, last question and a half. How do you define success as a poet or writer? And what has it done for you personally in your quality of life? Getting lofty again, because I desperately need that (laughs) boost. And, you know, that is a question that I ask myself often about how to define success. I, I used to, so I'll tell you how I used to define it. Um, and I'll tell you how I want to define it and then know that the truth of where I fall most days is somewhere in between (laughs) slamming back and forth. (laughs) Um, I, I used to define success was about getting in those top journals, the journals that show up in best American poetry, chasing after those, those big names as defined by the people that I was around in my graduate programs. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because I came into my graduate program 
knowing that I didn't understand this world at all, that I was used to the world of, of limericks and 19th century um, fireside poets and things. And, and, and knowing that I just didn't know anything, but desperately wanting to fit in. Cause I desperately wanted to be a Pope a poet <laughs> like just with that word in yeah. giant letters and yeah. you know choir of angels behind it and like <laughs> um i wanted that so bad for whatever reason and so i was really susceptible to how are all the people around me defining success because that must be the right way because they're very they're very sure of themselves they're very assertive about this definition so they must mm -hmm. be right mm -hmm. And and also, I, I, I think I kept chasing degrees because it was like, this will define success for me. Mm. So that used to be my definition, right? Like I wanted to get the Yale younger. I wanted to, you know, be in Best American. I mean, I still probably want those things. And how I would like to define success is feeling comfortable in my own skin, feeling as if the poem that's on the page connects with people and the way that i phrase it is that my poetry is seen by those who feel seen by my poetry um and that's that's how i really define success now or i want to on my good days <laughs> that i define it as that my work is getting seen by people who feel seen by my poetry and that there's that connection and that's really what success is but some days some days are harder than others to remind myself that that that's really what it's all about Oh, goodness. I love that. Wonderful note to end on, don't you think? Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> well, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, for sharing these wonderful stories and for your insights, but most importantly, for your incredible work. And I hope that we get lots of people to check out your website. Uh, what's the website? It's jennifershombergkanky.com. I will be sure to include all of your information in the podcast episode description. But it's really been a pleasure, and I hope that we get to talk a little bit more down the road, you know, once your next project is, is coming up. But uh, please stay in touch, and I will probably be bugging you later to send you an episode. Fabulous. I look forward to it. This was a lovely way to spend a little time. <laughs>